for the past month now, we've been talking about this day and next Sunday, the, the Vision Sundays. Times to reflect and think about the vision which we have for ministry here at Grace Fellowship. <clears throat> you know, the title of the sermon is Sharpening the Vision. Because like so many things in life, there's a physical, I think, a physical uh, way to see what I'm talking about, sharpening the vision. As, as we age and we use our eyes, I'm going to stay out of technical things because we have an optometrist here. But as we age and we use our eyes over the years, those muscles which bring into focus things like reading print begin to struggle to bring everything. It's, you can still see it. You're not blind. But it's just fuzzy. It's, it's, it's there, but it's not in focus. And so for a long time, we pretend as if we're not falling and we don't struggle with vision. And, you know, the book goes from here to here. To here. To out here. To there. To finally we say, I can't see See to read anymore. Uh, I'll go to Walmart and spend the seven dollars to get reading glasses. And we put those reading glasses on. Hopefully, we go to the eye doctor to make sure there's no other issues going on. We have a good one in Lincoln. And you know, you go see Stephen, and he tells you you don't have any tumors, no problems. You're just getting old. Go to Walmart. And buy the reading glasses. You probably need this magnification. You go get those. You go home. You put them on. You think, how can this make that big a difference? You put them on. It's like a whole new world is opened, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you just feel like you're young again. I can read without an extension arm, you know? No church is without vision. That's a misnomer in our day. Talking about loss of vision, no vision. As if, you know, the pa- usually we have vision sermons at churches when you have a pastoral change. The new guy comes in, what does he say? I have a vision for you. He sounds like some palm reader. You know, he's lived a hundred or two hundred or two thousand miles away and now he knows the vision for the church. First day on the ground. He's got it. That, that, that's just not how vision works. We've kind of made vision an idol in our society. We talk about it like there's these gurus out there that have a vision, and everybody just needs to get their vision, and then do what they do, and everything will be great. That's not the biblical idea of vision. God supplies vision. We need to sharpen our focus on the vision. Do you see the difference? The vision doesn't come from me or the elders projected out onto you and then you follow us. The vision is from God, from Christ. It is His church. He's building His church, right? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He sounds like a man with vision, Christ does. So I'm not trying to be 
some new age vision guru. I have not gone off into the mountains. I did, but I got no holy grail while I was there. But that's not necessary. God has a vision. He has a vision, and it is individual and it is corporate. It's individual and it's corporate. It's 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 simple and it's profound. Like so many other things in Scripture, we complicate it when really it, it is this simple. We're going to read what I believe to be God's vision for your life, my life, and the life of Grace Fellowship this morning in Matthew chapter 22. Because, as I understand it, vision is, if I was, you know, up to standards with the new technology in this century, I would have sketched out for you on my iPad and then projected it up on the screen so you could see this. It's on my paper. It doesn't do you a lot of good. But it's here if you want to see it. Purpose. Okay, purpose and the kingdom of God. That final consummated, fully consummated coronation which will occur when the kingdom is absolutely visible. All things are reconciled to him. Purpose, kingdom of God, and between those two things is this parallel which is occurring. In that, I call it vision. My understanding of vision is, I believe, biblical. And it's, it's simply, vision means, for a definition, purpose intentionally applied over time brings us to the kingdom of God. Full reconciliation with God Himself. Purpose Intentionally applied over time brings us to the full realization of the kingdom of God. And that in between, that intentionally applied over time part is what vision is. Jesus talked about it often, though he didn't use the catchphrase vision. What did he say? There are two roads in life. Right, children? One is broad. Many find it. And the gate that you go through leads you into destruction. It takes vision to go down that path. It takes vision. I have a purpose which I'm living for. Myself. And I'm headed to a kingdom which is destruction. If I apply over time the principles of self-worship, I will end up in the kingdom of destruction. Jesus also said in that same passage, children, what? But there is a narrow road. It is difficult. And there are few who find it. And through that narrow path, narrow gate, lies the kingdom of God. It takes vision to go down that road. God-given vision. Without God-given vision, you will, you will 
quickly find your feet running to the gates of destruction because it's our nature. But with God-given vision, you see the end, you, you see the end, and you say, oh, I do not want that for me. And God in His mercy has supplied the vision to see the path. There are many racing along the path to destruction thinking there's no other way. They can't see it. They lack vision. Purpose, God worship. Purpose for the narrow way is God worship. Glory to God is the purpose and applied over time. Sanctification, it leads into the ultimate kingdom, the consummated, fully consummated, glorified kingdom. And what I'm talking about today and next week is our refocusing, sharpening of that vision that everything else is foolishness. Everything else is a distraction. Everything in life, not... Some people call it tunnel vision. That guy has tunnel vision. That's what we need. We need to pray that God give us tunnel vision. To only see His kingdom. And so, we read in Matthew 22, what I believe to be the pillars of that kingdom vision. Now, let me set the context before we read the passage. The passage is 34 through 39, but let me read the context, or let me give you the context. I'm not going to read it for time's sake. But if you look, after teaching the parable of the wedding feast, then the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, three people, groups, inside the leadership of the Jewish nation, who despised one another, normally. They didn't eat at the same parties. They didn't do the same thing. They didn't like each other at all. If they were around, there was sure to be an argument break out. They conspire together in verse 15. We see the beginning of it. And plotted how they might trap Jesus, entangle Him in His own words. And so they came up with three schemes. The first, the Herodians led an attack. The Herodians were people who followed the family of Herod. They accepted the rulership of Rome, and they worked within those parameters to raise up or rise up into power in the Jewish nation. They were the ultimate politicians. We're going to get what we want by compromise with the Roman government. Right? And so they asked the question of Jesus publicly. And you can see it there in the beginning of verse 15. And they asked him this question. Paraphrase, should we pay our taxes? Now, being Herodians, they believed that you were to pay taxes. But they knew this. A large contingent of the Jews, led by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, did not want to pay taxes. They did not want the yoke of Roman oppression. They wanted to throw it off. And one way to throw it off was to not pay taxes and to rebel at all cost. And God would save them. 
So they ask. And they think if he answers, you should pay your taxes, it'll make all the people mad. And if he answers, you shall not pay your taxes. Though the Pharisees and Sadducees agree with him, he can then be tried as a rebel against the crown of Rome. Against Caesar himself. They, I, it's the perfect trap. We'll get him on taxes. The IRS tries to trap us all the time, don't they? Change the rules here, there, catch us. Jesus answers perfectly. He takes a denarii, a coin. It had Caesar's rendering on it, his face. It said, whose face is on the coin? Caesar's. He said, then render unto Caesar, holding the coin. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Flipped around, the denarii had a picture of the, one of the Roman gods. And he flips the coin then and says, and unto God, what is God's? How do you trap a man on that answer? He gave the perfect answer. The Herodians go back, hat in hand. Didn't work, guys. We didn't get him. The crowd's still building. Second attempt. The Sadducees say, sit over in the corner and watch us work. They go to Jesus. Now, their problem is they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe it. They have denied it. They have rejected it. They believe that the Old Testament doesn't give any grounds for the belief in a physical resurrection. And so in verse 23, they go to Jesus to test him. Again, to entrap him, to tangle him up. And they pose this question about a widow who has no children and the brother of the deceased husband marrying and having children. Whose wife will she be in the kingdom if there's a resurrection? Jesus gives, again, the perfect answer. You are wrong because you know not the Scriptures, nor do you believe in the power of God. In the resurrection, which will occur, by the way, and in that heavenly kingdom, no one will be married like they are here on the earth. They'll be like the angels. Well, the, the, they hear this answer and they're babbling all over themselves. I, I read into it as they go back whipped. And the crowd is astonished at his teaching. The crowd kind of is figuring this game out that the leaders of Israel are playing. And so one last ditch effort to grab Jesus, entangle him, and then be a, have a charge to have him kill. One last try. And it's over blasphemy. If they can get him to somehow rise up in opposition to God's law, then he is a guilty of blasphemy, which is punishable by death. And they think they've got him. And so a young lawyer, a scribe, not a trial lawyer. Lawyers in their day, don't, don't read your context of law into that. This is not an ambulance chaser. This guy is prosecuting for the law. That's his job. He knows it inside and out. The Pharisees have developed a fine system of law. 613 laws, to be exact, have been written now, describing the law of God perfectly and to, and to cover every case and instance that might arise among the people so that they not... 248 of these laws are positive, 
And the remaining, the remaining 365 are in the negative. You shall not. You shall and you shall not. 613 of them. And this lawyer, think of him as a constitutional lawyer. That's really more like what this man was. He knows the law inside and out. It's his expertise. He's there to see if Jesus agrees or disagrees with the law. And he asks a question which they were asking themselves, what is the greatest of the commandments? And they want Jesus' answer on it, believing they can trap him again. And, and I believe in answering their question, he gives them the perfect 2020 vision that we must have so that our purpose applied over time leads to the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of destruction. Leads to ultimately glorifying God, not glorifying ourselves. He gives the perfect vision answer. Look what he says. He's questioned, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The perfect vision answer. The parallels, the guardrails that lead from us having a purpose to glorify God and ultimately, ultimately land us in the reconciled, perfect, new earth kingdom follows these two guardrails. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, all the Old Testament rests. Jesus took 613 specific laws, case laws, and he boiled them into two statements. Now, I'm not much on reductionist theory, bringing things down to the smallest of all common denominators. But I I can't argue with this one. God Himself said it. This parallel, these it focuses, it sharpens our vision. So how does that sharpen my vision as an individual? Well, there's two points, I believe. Two things in this passage that sharpen our vision. First, if you're taking notes, write this down. We must, this is profound, we must love God with our whole being. We must love God with our whole being. It's profound because Jesus said it. Not because I said it. Where do you get that He said with your whole being? Well, He said... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. If you look that up, then it could mean the organ which pumps blood throughout your body. Don't make that mistake. You children, don't let your parents get off track. They may think that way. They've lost their vision. A lot of them may have. And you need to help them because as as we age, we lose our vision. We become unable to see the spiritual for the physical. 
So you can really help here. Because God's made you in a special way to see behind. A spiritual heart is what he's speaking of. A, not the organ which pumps the blood. But in the second definition, 2A in your dictionary of the Bible, it says the seat of the human. The essence of who you are as a human is what he's speaking of. You know, when I first studied this passage, I I made a mistake. I even taught it this way for a while, that he's really talking about three things. He's not at all speaking about three things. He's talking about one thing. Your whole being. You cannot love the Lord your God with all your heart and not your soul and your mind. You can't say, I love God with all my mind. Without your heart or your soul. You can't say, I'm just a spiritual being, Carlton. I'm in my spirit, I love God, but with my flesh, I love all these other things. No. You love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, or you don't love Him, is what He's saying. You love Him with all that you are, or you don't love Him. He's not talking about three parts of a human, He's talking about one human. I missed it for a long time. I spent time doing all this. So why did he divide it out? Because he knew our temptation would be to say, if he said, love the Lord your God with all that you are, we'd, we would inevitably fail at understanding all that we are. Humans still fail at all that we are. We got modern philosophy that wants to take us down the spiritual only road. We got modern philosophy that wants to take us down the road of the flesh only disregarding the spirit. And Jesus said, look, the heart, the soul, and the mind are you. All of you. Love God with all of you. All of your being. If you're going to have godly vision, which applied over time, that applied over time leads to the kingdom of God, it's going to take all of who you are. It's going to take all of who you are. And Jesus recognizes that by saying, your heart your soul, which this word means the spiritual self, that which is everlasting. And your mind, your understanding, your knowledge. You must love me with all that you are. Your emotions, your mind, your spirit, everything. And then... The second, the parallel to that being, the second point from this passage being, this is profound. We must love all other people as ourselves. He says neighbor. So, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus would do what? tell you a story. There was a man on his way to Jerusalem going down the Jericho Road. He fell among thieves and robbers. Lying close to death on the side of the road, he was passed by by a priest. And he was passed by by a Levite. And then came along 
a Samaritan who got off his donkey and picked the man up, bandaged his wounds, placed him on his donkey and took him to an inn. He paid for his stay, gave him food and wine and enough money to cover his stay and said, if there's anything else this man owes once he's healed and moved on, I will come back and pay it. Who in the story was the man's neighbor? The Samaritan. Right? The other people. The wrong people. And by saying it, Jesus is including all people. That's your neighbor. And then Jesus left them. They need no other explanation. Love the Lord your God with your whole being, everything that you are, the seat of your emotion, your will, your intellect, your spirit, everything that you are. Love God and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, our neighbor is all people. It's not the people like us. How do we know? Because at another place, Jesus said, love your enemy. Love those who hate you and persecute you. Do good to them. Love your neighbor. The Samaritan is your neighbor. All of the people. It's clear, isn't it? Love everybody as yourself. And also we see here that there's this concept of self-love, which he's not teaching. He's presuming it. He's the creator. He made you. He made me. He need not tell us to love ourselves, And then say, now love your neighbor as yourself. He knows you love yourself. He knows I love myself. Every person loves themselves. And thinks themselves to be the greatest among all men. It's instinctive. You don't have to tell a child to love itself. It will love itself. Why? Because it wants to preserve. If you eat, if you drink, if you put clothes on, if you live in a house, you love yourself. Oh, you can make a little pious and say you're doing it for your family. But you're doing it for yourself. If you're doing it for your family, let them live in the house and you live outside. We love ourselves. And so often we can fuss about that. That's the way God made us. God, Jesus isn't attacking self-love. He's not saying it's a bad thing. If you didn't love yourself, your life would be very short. He's presuming on the fact of self-love. Do you see it? And then he's saying, love others the way you love yourself. These two commandments... Clear up vision. There's no vision problem. That applied over time leads to the eternal kingdom. And so, unlike maybe other vision sermons you've heard that came with lots of specifics and lots of things that the person had for you, I'm bringing you what I think to be the guardrails the guides of the path, the torches to light our way, which Jesus gave us. And the crafting of a vision happens among a people. Because there's many ways to love our neighbor, isn't there? 
There's many ways to love our neighbor as ourself. There's not one way or five ways. There's literally thousands of ways to love our neighbor as ourselves. And your way of loving your neighbor as yourself may look a little different than mine, nuanced, changed. That's why we're a body collectively together. I can't do everything that you can do, and you can't do everything that I can do, but together, God has supplied all that's needed to love our neighbor as ourself, individually and corporately. We can't even love God by ourselves. Not fully. It's the most dangerous place you can be in, really. And some of you may be there now. Is to think you can love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and don't need a body around you. I can do it by myself. If that were the case, there'd be no need for a church. But the fact is, He created and crafted the church and placed us in the universal church, broken down into small fellowships, that are displayed in our community. And he said so many great statements about serve one another, love one another. Right? You can't do the one another passages of the New Testament by yourself. Therefore, you can't love God by yourself. These two Stand to hold all of the law and the prophets. These two. Now, I want to, uh, before I move into an application section, I'm going to change the order a little bit. Because I know some of you, and you're not critical in a bad way, but you're critically thinking right now. You're saying, well, wait a minute. Because I remember Paul saying, and so I'm going to say what Paul said. In Galatians Chapter 5, and you can write this down in your notes. In Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, ending in verse 15. This is what Paul said. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Okay? This is what some of you were thinking about. For... The whole law is fulfilled in one saying. One saying. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Wait a minute, Paul. Jesus said two commandments. You said one commandment. Be careful. Because what Jesus really did, and what became so clear to me as I studied this time, is Jesus said one commandment two ways. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind is impossible unless you love your neighbor as yourself. It is an absolute contradiction to say, I love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, but I don't give a rip about other people. All I need is God, my Bible, and myself. That's all I need. Jesus says you don't love God then. Paul says, no, that's not true. That's a lie. 
You cannot love God and not love your neighbor. And the reverse is true also. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself unless you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. It's humanly impossible. I'm a nerd, self-professed about some things anyway. And I enjoy debate. I, I like it. Probably because they argue, and I like arguments or something. I don't know. But I like the wrestling, the focusing in on the intricacies of a belief. And so I buy videos and things, tapes, and I listen to debate on the Internet and DVDs. I got this DVD. Christopher Hitchin, one of the leading minds, so-called minds in the secular world today, on a debate, in a debate with Douglas Wilson, a pastor from Idaho, made this statement. Christianity is a wicked cult and it should be done away with because it requires two things which no man can do. Love your neighbor as yourself, being the first and foremost. No one can love their neighbor as their self. He's right. He didn't prove that Christianity is a wicked cult. He proved that all men are wicked and in need of Christianity. In need of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Because you can't love your neighbor as yourself in your own strength and power. Can't do it. You can't even love your husband or your wife as yourself. Neither can I. So these aren't two separate things. It's one and the same thing from two angles. A vertical angle where we look up and see God Himself and love Him with all our heart, soul, and mind in a horizontal level. Which means we look at others with the eyes of God and His love and serve and love them as ourself. Is the vision maybe a little, just a tick less blurry? Or maybe it's a lot more blurry and so the application section will help. As we're moving to the application section, you do remember that without love, everything else is worthless. Faith, hope, and love, and of these three, love remains. It is the constant. Without love, nothing else matters. So how will we love God then? Here, Grace Fellows, individually and as a corporate body. Three things Exceptional devotion, excellent community, expositional preaching. Exceptional devotion. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. That means everything I am. And so our devotion must be pure. It must be right. You're not on the narrow path even unless you have exception, devotion to God. Exceptional devotion, which I want to get into next week. Excellent community. We can be really good in the prayer closet, we think, because we use our mind well. 
or we use our heart well. Some of you, when you do your devotion, it's like a seminary class. You sit down, you tear that word apart, and you dig in. You've parsed every word. You've come up with this intricate, detailed outline. And you leave the closet feeling good about what you've done. And others of you would never do that. You sit down with an open Bible. You've got music playing. And you're emotionally engaging Christ. And your mind is in neutral. And you don't really care to delve into the reality and the truth of the Word. You're just feeling it. You're just feeling it all the time. And... That's not excellent devotion on either side. There's a lot of seminary, there is seminary professors that will bust hell wide open. And they're brilliant. And there are plenty of people who feel like they know Jesus, but they don't know him. Excellent devotion is what we're talking about. To, to, to love God excellently requires devotion. Excellent community, beginning with our families, spreading to our small groups, landing in discipleship. If Grace Fellowship will accomplish this, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, it will be accomplished through devotion, which leads us to community. What is your family consumed with? What are the discussions around your tables consumed with? Then spread that to your small group of friends, whoever that might be. Because, see, you automatically thought I was talking about home groups, which I think are good. But I was talking about your small group of influence, the people you're around, you're with. When y'all are together, what are you consumed with? It tells us where our devotion is. It tells us whether we're loving the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. And then it will flow into discipleship because out of that sphere of influence, there will be those who are faithful to pass on the beliefs and, and, and be trained up in teaching and, and passing on to the next generation the truths of God's Word. And you will disciple them. And expository preaching. This month has been an exceptional month. In our calendar, we're generally going through a passage a book. Why? Because I believe that through time, applied over time, expositional preaching brings us to God. Over time. It won't do it by itself, but it will do it over time. It will transform our minds. It will bring us our hearts before His throne. So those three things, how will we love God? At least in those three ways. Exceptional devotion, excellent community, expository preaching. One rail up here, one parallel, one guardrail finished or thought through a little. That, how do we apply loving our neighbor? What do I mean? Sacrifice, service, and salvation. Sacrifice, service, and salvation. That's how we love our neighbor. Sacrifice. Not just our money, but nothing less than that. Time, money, resources, abilities laid on the altar before God as a sacrifice. All that I have, 
not 10%, not 20%, not 40% of my money, but all of my money. Not an hour a week, two hours a week, four hours a week, but all of the hours of my week, God. It will take that kind of mentality to love our neighbor as ourself. Not my teaching talent only, but all of my talents. Service. Paul told us then in Galatians 5, You've been saved and you've been given freedom, but don't use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh. Rather, serve one another. Service is how we will love our neighbor. I'm staying broad. I'm leaving room. Salvation. You can sacrifice all the time, money, resources, abilities, talents, and you can serve individuals and your whole community. And if never the gospel is preached, in the end, eternally, you've made no impact. So it's not a choice that we're making as a church. We're going to be a sacrificial church, or or we're going to be a serving church, or we're going to be a salvation-only church. Because sacrifice strikes at the emotion and service strikes, I think, at our understanding of being a Christian because we understand it takes service to look like a Christian. And salvation strikes at the soul. And Jesus didn't say any of those three by themselves were good enough. He said all of them. All of them. He gathered them up. All of them. That's how we will love our neighbor. So what am I ultimately saying? Ultimately, I'm saying this. As a church, there's no Holy Graham textbook where we just apply what's in the textbook to our lives and it comes out perfect in the end. There's no simple ABC equation to work. Five steps to perfection. None of that. There's these two things. Grace Fellowship must do this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And so I'm setting the table for next week where we become very application-driven in the sermon and in our banquet together. I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts to digest over the week, to talk among yourselves about this. First of all, the thing that Grace Fellowship prides itself on, always has, is our understanding of doctrine. Do we really understand doctrine? Do we really get it? Do we really understand it? And if so, if you would say, yes, we get it, then just jot down, honestly, what evidence, what fruit is there of that? I'm not saying there's not any. I'm I'm just asking you to think critically about your life and church, our church. I'm asking you to do that because I think it's crucial to vision Focusing. 
Second question. If Grace Fellowship ceased to exist tomorrow, there was no more Grace Fellowship, who would care? Who would care? Ponder, think, be honest, pray. Godly vision is gained through prayer and study of His Word. Pray, think, study, answer honestly. Those two questions. If we really have right doctrine, what's the fruit of it? If we exist no longer starting tomorrow, who cares? Let's pray. Father, we... uh...